Alright everybody, welcome to another developer cast here on the Game Wisdom channel. I am Josh Beiser and we have another great one for you tonight. My guest is the game designer over at Elden Pixels, whose previous game was Always Awakening. It was a non-retro action-adventure platformer that was deceptively challenging in some of its platforming. And it ended with one heck of a twist that they are now going to Kickstarter to see if they can answer that with Alwa's Legacy. So, please welcome to the cast, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing great. It is fantastic to have you on. Thank you again for agreeing to come on to the cast. No worries at all. It's uh, great to be on the cast. Mm-hmm. And right now, as we are doing this cast, the Kickstarter for All Walls Legacy is going on, and you yep. guys are just shy of 17000 So, uh, congratulations on what you've gone so far, and definitely best of luck with hitting your goal. Yeah, thank you. We're, uh, we're really struggling to, uh, hard to reach our goal, but I think we're doing fine, and we had a good start, and um, I feel really confident that we should reach 100% pretty soon. So, yeah, but we need all the help we can get. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that this podcast will help you guys out. And of those yeah. of you watching this, we're going to try and do at some point during the next few days or so a spotlight of the backer demo for All Walls Legacy. Kind of get some more buzz for you. But yeah. there's definitely a lot to talk about tonight. So to begin with, since this is your first time on the cast, Michael, for people watching us live or recorded, could you talk a little bit about your background and what is Awa's Awakening and, by extension, Awa's Legacy? Uh, yes, my background. That's um, that's a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. Uh, basically, I've uh, like many others, I've been a fan of video games since I was like, you know, five or six. I got the old NES uh, from my dad, like uh, one of the first. Uh, I actually got the Famicom before I got the NES back in 86, 87 or something like that. And I always been interested in video games, playing them and trying to con to make them myself, but I actually never really pursued making video games until six or seven years ago, um, because basically all my life I worked in a video store, and up until a few years ago we had quite a lot of video stores here in Sweden, but they kind of quickly disappeared like the last five or six years. And I've realized I should find something else to work with besides working in the video store, so I... Uh, went to business school actually and studied uh, marketing and uh, sales and ended up doing an internship at a studio called Coffee Stain Studios here in Sweden. Uh, they're mostly known for Goat Simulator, okay. uh, but now they're making Satisfactory. And uh, that internship led to me getting hired at uh, Image of Four and Soink Games, which are two developers here in Gothenburg, Sweden, where I live at, where I live in. And I worked there for... Uh, let's see, about four years, I think, altogether on both companies, uh, doing mostly marketing, sales, office managing, products managing, and stuff like that. Not really anything that had to do any with designing games. But on the side, I've always been a fan of making stuff, you know, making music, making art, making, you know, creating, creating fun stuff to uh, work with. And that led to me and a couple of friends on the side of our normal day jobs, which were at Soink Games, we started working with Aldous Awakening, just like a side project, just to be, just for fun, just for creativity, with no really 
no big plans of releasing the game commercially in that sense. And we started with that in 2015. And that eventually led to being a uh, released game in early 2017 and all this all this awakening was just made on like weekends nights uh, like during two quite hectic years of development but we still had our normal day jobs and that game came out in early 2017 and in the the plan was kind of to release the game and you know don't really do much more about it because the goal was to release the game on Steam and that was pretty much it. But people kept asking for ports, they kept asking for a Switch version, they kept asking for more content and kept asking about us to keep working with the game. So eventually in 2018 we kind of realized that, okay, the first game I was awakening had been such a small but still a success in, to that extent. and. We decided to uh, actually give up our day jobs and pursue this uh, indie game development uh, career for real. So it was it was me, the programmer, and the artist who did the art on the Alvis Awakening. So since 2018, early 2018, we've been uh, doing in Elden Pixels our company full time, and we have been working on um, Alvis Legacy basically most of the time for one year half now. Great. Yeah. And like with something like uh, All's Awakening, that was released in 2017. So that right. was like kind of like around the time, like we've kind of been like firmly established with having this kind of quote unquote modern retro market for a yeah. lot of games. I guess my next question for you, Michael, is like what was like the inspiration for going like modern retro with like the first game for you guys? Um, the thing is with Elvis Awakening, it actually started as a NES uh, homebrew project. We started writing assembly code and tried to get that to work. And we did get it to work, but it was such so much work for so little result. So we actually abandoned doing an own NES version of Elvis Awakening in early 2015, I'd say. And then we decided, should we continue working on the game? and select another engine to work with and make it a more modern game and or give give it up. But we decided to keep on working with it and switch to Unity in 2015. And the inspiration for Elvis Awakening basically came from, I'd say, a combination of an old NES game called the Battle Kid, which is this super tough, challenging screen-by-screen platformer that is like Mega Man, but 10 times more challenging. Mm -hmm. And also a series of video games called Trine. Uh, they are releasing part four now, uh, I yeah. think. I've only played the two first. And what I really liked about Trine was that it didn't really focus that much on action. It mostly focused on the puzzle part, the combination of two players working together, three players if you have two friends over. And the setting was just cool, I thought. So we decided that we should try to make Elvis Awakening a combination of a challenging platformer, but still have the focus on exploration, adventuring, and using your magic skills in clever ways instead of actually defeating the enemies. So we didn't really want to have the game focus on any action at all, really. And the enemies are there, but they're merely an obstacle in your way of uh, traversing forward. Yeah. I think that's very interesting in terms of the design. Like, for instance, I'm recently on stream, I'm playing through Ori and the Blind Forest, which is a fantastic platformer. Yeah. And 
There's definitely a greater focus on the combat side of that compared to something like Awa's Awakening and I'm assuming by extension Awa's Legacy. And it's always challenging, I think, with a lot of these games to know just how much the combat should kind of be, I guess, like the priority of the design. Yeah. Um, now, uh, one thing I forgot to ask, I always like to do this when we have international guests on, is yeah. for, like, again, like my audience definitely consists of a lot of people in the United States, although I do have an international following. I'm just curious, like, how is, like, the state of the game scene? And I think your base out is at uh, Gothenburg, Sweden? Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. uh, how the game scene here is in Gothenburg? Yeah, it's uh, um, it's hard for me to say compared to other cities, but in 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 Sweden uh, there are three big cities, and um, we are the second biggest city. And Stockholm is by far the biggest when it comes to um, like they have the Rovio, they have a lot of uh, huge developers. Uh, but Gothenburg is kind of like known as the indie part of Sweden. There's a lot of smaller indie devs here. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, both Soink Games and Image Form are based here. And there are a few other um, known names coming out of Gothenburg here as well. And what we've been fortunate enough to, we actually have our uh, small office space um, next to two other game studios. So we're sharing like a huge office with uh, Retroid Interactive, who's also a smaller indie dev, and Sky Goblin, who's been releasing indie games for like the last 10 years or so. And that's kind of cool about the indie game development, that you don't see any of the other uh, companies like competitors. You just see them as friends. Yeah. And uh, that's really cool, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we see a lot from the other developers we've had over these casts, that yeah. everyone, it's definitely been like a, uh, very much like a club for everyone to enjoy and enjoy everyone's success. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you don't, you're not really competing with each other. You, you're kind of competing with, with people, how much time they spend on video games, because there's only so many hours on the day, and... In that sense, you're kind of competing, but you're not competing about the same customers. You're not competing about the same money. So we're always like sharing secrets and stuff like that. If I go <laughs> over and ask, how much did you make on that? Was it worth it? How much did you pay? There's no, there are no secrets like in indie game development, uh, especially here in Gothenburg. I think that's really cool. Helps you a lot to find out yeah. facts. Yeah, it's great to hear. Yeah. Now, um, going back to Owl's Awakening, then, yeah. um, in terms of the design. Like you mentioned, some of the games you were inspired by with creating it, and the one that always like stuck out to me for some strange reason was something like uh, Milton's Secret Castle from way back in the day with the whole bubble mechanic, as you're able to like create the bubble and kind of use that to float up and around objects. Um, I guess the, uh, one of the big things about the game, as we said, is it has a heavy emphasis on the puzzle-solving or kind of the transversal uh, challenges. Yeah. What were some of like the design decisions in terms of figuring out what you wanted to test the player with, with like moving from one area to the next? We, we designed the game to so that each screen is like a small puzzle in itself. Like, we always have the design philosophy that if you enter a room there are never you never get hit by anything there aren't any action coming uh, straight at you there aren't any enemies walking to you so you can always enter uh, a room and they always one screen each and you can always stay there for like a few seconds just analyzing okay what's the, what's the challenge here and we try to divide the different rooms into kind of 
is it an action room? Is it a puzzle room? Is it a room where you have to move fast, where speed is your friend? And we kind of try to pace every other room so there's there's aren't like two action rooms next to each other. There's always like a puzzle, movement, action, and then you repeat the cycle. And uh, I think in that sense, the pacing works. And uh, once you get the pattern down on each room, it you can always fly through each room with graceful uh, <laughs> movement because you, you never get hit once you figure out the pattern. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and the action rooms are, there are action rooms, but they're ma- mostly like about challenging the player, about making right platform hum- jumps um, and fighting as well. Mm-hmm. Now, with the powers that you get in the game, and it, if I forget, please refresh my memory. But I remember you had the green block, the blue yep. bubble, and yep. I think I'm forgetting a third power. Yeah, you have a lightning bolt, which okay. works both for puzzles and for offensive attacks. Mm-hmm. With like those specific mechanics in play, were there any other elements you were thinking about including in Always Awakening in terms of like more mechanics, or did you kind of settle on like your core skills like very early on? And we did experiment with one more ability, but the thing is we, we developed the game, as I mentioned earlier, it started out as a as NES homebrew, and then you only have the the eight buttons, and four are directional, and you have select the start, and only A and B, so we kind of realized if you wanted to change magic you needed to use the select button, and you can't, you can only go from left to right while changing magics, so we ended up doing three magic spells, like the block bubble and the um, lightning bolt, because then you're always just two pushes away from selecting the correct magic. If you had four, it would be three uh, yeah. pushes. And we thought that was kind of one too much. And that's why we ended up on three magics. And I think that works pretty well. Well, But they are upgrades to it. But that was also something we wanted to... Um, like, like in the Zelda games, a lot of the upgrades you have, you don't really have to select them and use them. They are normally like very well incorporated yeah. in the game world. Like you have your shots and whatever, and they just expand in height or length or strength or whatever. And that's something we adjusted to as well. So mm-hmm. with the only jump and attack button, that's you can maneuver through the entire world and you can use all your items. Uh, so you never go into the item selection or select anything. And that's something we really wanted because I think a lot of the games are too... In my taste, of course, it's highly personal, but I think we wanted to make a game where it's not focused on the items. It's just mm-hmm. focused on movement or inspiration. Yeah. And like with the world itself, again, like, it was very interesting to play Always Awaiting back in 2017 with just that sheer amount of the exploration side of things. Because I really wasn't... Again, when we play... like I have played so many modern retro games this past decade that you never know... Yeah. Uh, what to get or what to really see in terms of the kind of gameplay. In terms of building the world itself, as you say, you originally started this as kind of like a homebrew project for the NES, and then yeah. it kind of grew from there. In terms of world size, did you have like like that pretty much settled from the beginning, or did things kind of grow or even shrink over the course of development? Um, I think we had a pretty basic outline of the entire world quite early in the progress progress um, but uh, what was challenging uh, designing grid by grid by route that like 
as as you moved further into development, the more were added and locked into. It was kind of hard to change something because the huge grid all all grids were taken by different rooms. So if you wanted to change one room in one dungeon, you had to change everything surrounding those areas. So it was kind of hard to design, but uh, uh, quite early we decided on the way the game should look. And you'd had your basic, you know, forests and swamps and dungeons and uh, stuff like that. And since it's an NES-inspired game, we used the old palette swap, which was common in those days where you mm-hmm. had you your green temple, your red temple, your your purple temple. And although we didn't reuse that many tiles, some of them are used, which I just think that adds to the style of the whole um, type of gameplay, I say. Mm-hmm. Um, a quick question came in from Child in chat. He was curious yeah. about, in terms of Alwa's legacy, um, yeah. are there any new changes to the mechanics or systems besides just going from 8-bit to 16-bit? Yes, there are. Uh, there are basically two major improvements. One is that your the upgrades you have to your block bubble and uh, lightning bolt. There are uh, there's like a skill tree. You could uh, select whichever way you want to upgrade. Which means that if you want to play offensive, you can uh, use uh, your uh, upgrades on your uh, lightning bolt, and that would help you progress further into the game using that. Or you could be more explorative and you can upgrade your bubble or your block and that's it's always an like a, you have to decide yourself which way you want to go and which way you want to explore and that's one of the things we added which we thought would looks really cool gives more um, um you can the player can decide themselves uh, which way they want to progress and besides that we have a new system we call ability it's um there are four of them, and they work in conjunction with your normal magic skills. So there's like an additional button that you have to select, and it's basically different. I won't spoil too much about what kind of mechanics we have, but um, in the demo we're going to show, which you're going to play, you'll have one shield ability, which lets you safely traverse like dangerous uh, spikes and stuff like that. And you have to use that power like quite um, carefully because it it's only limited for a few seconds and you can only use it uh, one time per room and if you end up using it uh, you have to recharge it and you have to as the game progresses you have to learn to switch between these abilities while you still have to use your magic so it it works really well and although it's one more button it's still very very easy to pick up and play and it's like even like a young child can play the game and uh, have with it but still mm-hmm. there's a lot of depth to the upgrade system which i think really works really well great and if anyone has any questions for uh michael regarding always awakening or legacy feel free to post them in chat as well but yeah, yeah we'll talk more about always legacy probably in the next few minutes um cool. getting back to awakening I have a few more questions for you, and if there's anything yeah. you want to bring up, uh, definitely feel free to do that as well, Michael. Um, cool. With the with the actual challenge of the game itself, this is one thing I was really curious about. Because, again, with so many games that are involved with like kind of modern retro design, we've seen definitely that push between making a classic game but making it easier, or going classic and going even harder than they were back in the day. And like I said at the start, Owl's Awakening is very, I think, deceptive in terms of its challenge. Like you don't think there's a lot to it, 
But then one of the things I remember, especially in like I think it was like the penultimate or the ultimate section, is you really get crafty with having to combine your powers very quickly. So, you know, a bubble into a block into another bubble to try to get around like spike rooms, for instance. Yeah. So in terms of, I guess, the difficulty level that you were approaching with the game, how did you settle, I guess, on, you know, what kind of player skill level you wanted for Owl's Awakening? I think, like, the whole concept of the basic design for Owl's Awakening came from that we we saw a lot of games were kind of trying emulating retro style, but didn't really nail the whole eight bit look. So we 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 made sure we went all the way. Like, not only had an eight bit look, we actually used you know the limitation uh, to the NES so we had like eight uh, sorry four four colors per tile and stuff like that and that really was a logic choice for us and and we extended that to the design as well because i mean um i grew up playing all those i remember playing the first uh, legend of zelda games and you didn't have any you know any sense of direction where you should go you didn't get any instruction instructions and all the tips the NPCs like the old guy were telling you were just too weird to figure out. Uh, so that's the kind of design we went for in Alva's Awakening as well. You're you're really just dropped into this world. You don't really know where to go. You don't really know where you've been, what's going on, and you just traverse the world. And I'd say in hindsight, I could probably redo a couple of things. There's too much insta-death in the Alva's Awakening, I'd say, mm -hmm. but... Um, you know, you're sitting there designing the game in your own room, and you have really no idea what people can think. And we did extensive amount of testing. Like, we had a lot of people helped us throughout the development. But I think most of the people who helped us were also fans of these super challenging NES games. So no one really complained about the difficulty. But And I don't think anyone really does complain about the difficulty. But um, I think a lot of a lot of people think it's really, really challenging. But what we did is that we ended added a death count. So each time you die, you have this game over screen, which says how many times you die. So even if you keep on dying, it kind of ends up becoming like a, a fun thing. You'll see your death count growing up. And we have a lot of people just, oh, I finished the game, and I had 100 or 200 or 300 death counts. And it's always fun to compare that stat because it's uh, <laughs> it's no shame in having like 300 death counts when you finish the game. Um <laughs> But what we did when we released the Switch version, which came out uh, about a year ago uh, in late 2018, was that we added something called Assist Mode, uh, which I think Celeste was the one who helped populate it into the broader terms. It's basically a, a mode that you can put on, and instead of dying and respawning at a checkpoint, you have to do like five or ten rooms, you just respawn in the same room. And it's no penalty for the player. It's just an easier setting if you want to experience the game, but you don't have to redo all the rooms again. And we thought that worked really well. And we have that the same setting in Aldous Legacy as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and um, as you were saying, they're regarding like the death traps. I think that's another very polarizing point for a lot of people. Because again, yeah. like I, I think like my, like yourself and probably my audience watching this right now, we all grew up playing the old school games. I've yeah. died to many spikes in Mega Man, for instance. Yeah. And that's always tricky in terms of, again, like what elements to bring back from classic games and what elements you get rid of. 
Because I remember with something like Shovel Knight, they also used spikes as a death pit, but yeah. they had a lot more. They had the invin- invincibility power and more in terms of checkpoints. And yeah. again, like you never know really, you know, what your audience is going to respond to with these kinds of old school designs. No, exactly. You just put the game out there, and you get the you get the reaction. What I thought, think it's quite funny is that we did we did the entire development of uh, Elvis Awakening for like close to two years, but at the end of the development cycle, we added the last uh, temple, the end game dungeon, mm. and we've done so many rooms, and we were so skilled in the level design, and we knew how to way to make creative rooms. So we did the last dungeon quite fast, actually. And that dungeon is super hard. It's super long yes. between checkpoints. Everything kills you. And it's fun <laughs> to hear because we get two people. Either you get the one who says, I love that dungeon because it really, you need to stay on your toes. You need to know exactly where to go. You need to combine all the magic attacks. And then there are people who just absolutely think it's horribly <laughs> challenging and almost ends up rage quitting. And it's and it always either one of those and i thought that was fun either you love it or you hate it but besides the final dungeon i think the game is pretty uh, pretty good balanced there are some challenging areas but it's not that hard i'd say easy for me to say who made the game but you know <laughs> mm-hmm. and i can't say either even though i i definitely did beat the game all the way through oh it did cool yeah um i guess like speaking about that kind of difficult i think one thing that i was like another like polarizing point from some people was the amount of like backtracking and you know yeah. old school exploration? As you said, as you said a few times already, a major part of All's Awakening is this idea of you're dropping into the world, start wandering around, see what you can find, and yeah. that's definitely one of the more old school ways of designing a game. Again, what we see today is a lot more games are railroaded or they're a lot more linear in terms of hey, maybe you should go over here first and then go over there and get that yeah. power up. And I do remember, I did get lost, I think, several times the first time I played through Awakening. I did yeah. get better when I played it a second time on stream, but again, like when you're trying to balance a game around kind of old and new sensibilities, I guess, how much did you like look into, I guess, you know, again, like just kind of letting the player off their leash in terms of exploring? Yeah, once again, it's super hard knowing how you should... Get allowed them to get lost, but I remember like mid development of Alice Awakening, the Game Maker Toolkit, another YouTube channel, he released a video called uh, "Getting Lost in Action Verge." I think I think it was Game Maker Toolkit, but it was an interesting video about the design of Action Verge, which is which is another great uh, Metroidvania. And basically, the video said there's there's nothing really wrong about allowing the player to be lost at times, but it kind of helps you to realize, okay, where where should I go and allow the player to find their own way. And that was something I took to heart. So I made sure that you're not really told where to go, but we did make sure that whatever way you go, there's always um, there's always a way back. Like you never go into 10 rooms and then end up in a dead end. You always loop back to something. So mm-hmm. if you didn't find your way forward, at least you find a couple of power-ups or a new way or you reopen a shortcut. So there's always something rewarding at the end of a cycle and it always loops you back to whatever you came from in the beginning or into a new area. So there aren't any dead ends. And I think that helps a lot. So mm-hmm. if you get lost, there's always like a loop back to whatever you came from. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, sure, there there are items that need to be found, and some are more hidden than. But you know, overall, I think um, I think the item progression and, and getting lost isn't that bad. But it's hard for me to say because I knew every inch of the game as well. So. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I do remember. I think it was in the second dungeon or the second yeah. temple that there was a shortcut to a cavern or it connected somewhere else. I remember I kind of missed that shortcut and I had to go back like the long way around. And uh, yeah. yeah, and I think I do remember, I think it was like around like the halfway to three quarter point. I was getting a little bit frustrated. I, I knew what I needed. I just didn't know how to get to where I needed. And yeah, Again, like that's one of the more like interesting parts about some of these designs. Like as you said, the world itself doesn't have any. There's very few in terms of like dead ends. You know, you go and then it's just like you cannot go this way. You must retread. You know, twenty, thirty screens. And yeah. for something like Alice Awakening, with like kind of the upgrade system and how it's like built into the world itself, I'm trying to think with like the. With, like, the challenges of the game, again, like, how did you know, I guess, how hard you really want to make the game? So I'm sure you guys thought of even harder challenges with the with Always Awakening. Like, what was kind of, like, the line that you kind of set for yourselves in terms of how difficult you wanted to make the world? Hmm, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, really. We, we, did, we did a lot of testing, and... Um, I think there are like there is a natural progression to the game that you can like there are temples that show up in the proper order if you follow the progression line so and we made sure that they became increasingly difficulty uh, but it's not until the last temple we really crank up the difficulty mm-hmm. but something we also added a little in the beginning was that there there are a couple of like uh, sequence break techniques that are quite easy, easy to find. Uh, a lot of people find them in the normal play too. Basically, it's that you can chain two blocks together by jumping and putting down a block in midair, then jumping mm-hmm. from it. And you can also do the same thing with the bubbles. Mm-hmm. And we realized this like yeah, somewhere in mid-development, and that kind of opened up a whole new path. So we had to go back and basically redo. <laughs> A lot of the rooms uh, to open up for this kind of sequence break, and uh, that was that is still one of the best parts I think about Alva's Awakening that you can once you get those techniques down, um, you can basically go to the fourth temple right off the start. You can get the second temple in any order you want, and you can do almost any any temple and any item progression in any way you want. And although it is a kind of hidden sequence break technique, a lot of people find it and have really really fun doing it because they kind of feel like they are um, you know um, not cheating the game but kind of or outsmarting the game uh, and it really helps them to feel like oh cool I found a super secret technique and now I can go to this place where I'm not supposed to be at and I think that's one of the core strengths of uh, Alpha's Awakening that you can find your own way and still have fun exploring yeah. and that I think is a very fascinating topic in itself like about having those unintended sequence breaks or advanced tech in your game and then figuring out what to do with it. Because as a designer, you're not really thinking about, you know, 
you didn't really come up with like those advanced elements. You know, that's probably that was done by the testers, and especially about speedrunners. Yeah. I know um, Always Waiting has a speedrun mode. I I never got good enough to put a good time up, but. Yeah. It's very fascinating when we see games approach those kinds of techniques because I've played other kind of movement or transversal-based games that have those little, you know, those subtle elements to their maneuvers that, you know, on the outside, you don't really think about it as a designer. But then as somebody who's playing the game, as you said, it kind of leads to those aha moments of, hey, the game didn't want me to do that, but I just did it anyway. Now, look, I just skipped this whole section. And yeah. it's always fun I didn't have that. I spoke to a developer who made the game uh, Vision Soft Reset. This was at the beginning of this year. And mm-hmm. I remember, like, they had a maneuver where when you shoot down, it propels your character up. And it was yeah. kind of like a pseudo-double jump before the game actually introduces the double jump. And yeah. I spoke to him about it. I was like, oh, yeah, I knew. Like, that was a mechanic. I, I, you know, we figured that out, and I made sure to put that in that game. Yeah. And I think it's a very interesting discussion about, as a developer, what do you do? Like, is there a, a right way of when somebody finds these sequence breaks? Because I'm sure there are developers out there who, when they hear about these kinds of little tactics or things, they go, I need to, you know, nerf that. I need to get that out of the game. But as you were just saying, like, when you figured, when you found those things out, you were like, let's read it. Let's make these levels even more accommodating towards the, this tech. Yeah, that's exactly what I remember when there's like an early video of me. Not I didn't find like the block double jump, and, but uh, I remember when I learned about it, like, oh, you can actually do this. There's like a, this mobile video of me recording the screen. Oh, this is a call I'm showing like my wife and she's trying to record my, my video game and I was super proud of it. But yeah, we did redesign the whole thing and like, you know, made sure you can block jump to different levels and stuff like that. But uh, it was fun during development because we had a lot of testers uh, who just sent us, oh, I'm here now. Am I supposed to be here? And I'm like, no, how, how the hell did you get there? And I had to kind of retrace their steps. Okay. And okay, so okay, you went that way, you did that way. What was kind of challenging though, so that is, is that there are a bunch of keys in the game, like 10 or 15 uh, keys in the game. And we have... Um, about the same number of locked doors, of course. But depending if you kind of skipped your way out of the normal loop, we kind of realized, okay, now you picked up a key in this dungeon, but you used it in the kind of the wrong dungeon. And that led to a bunch of like design issues, which was really hard to figure out. Okay, so if you're doing this, you're picking up that key, you're dying there, responding there. Okay, then we need to make sure you find your way back to that. And as I mentioned earlier, we released a game in... Uh, February 2017, and in in uh, August last year, one year and a half later into its uh, release cycle, we released the Switch version, and then we added Rumble. So all of a sudden, we had the controller to Rumble once you're near a secret wall, mm. and we thought that was cool because it just helped adding like, okay, here's a secret I can hear the controller Rumble. It was of course you could turn it off if you didn't want the hints, but that led to people finding a secret wall, which we just added in order to solve one of those (laughs) game design sequence breaks that, okay, people are getting stuck in this place. So we added this secret wall, which no one ever found unless you know what you're looking for. But now all of a sudden, everyone was finding it in the Switch version and ending up another soft lock. (laughs) 
And I was like, we just, you know, have face palm. We're like, oh, God, damn, what the hell have we done? <laughs> and we had to patch that out quite quickly, actually. And if I remember it correctly, we found this before the game came out. And it was like a f- five days before the release. And we kind of realized, okay, everyone's going to get stuck here. Everyone's going to get stuck here. And this is an important release. So we contacted Nintendo side and said, we need to patch this quickly. And they were like, yeah, sure, just add a patch and it'll take two weeks uh, before we approve it. Oh. And like, no, no, we need to patch it. It's, it's releasing tomorrow. Like, we need to patch it now. But oh, no, no, we can't do that. It's like a week. Wait. And we released the game and we just went out on Twitter and said that, okay, if you get stuck here, you have to do this and this. And we had to record like a YouTube video in order to escape that secret fake. And then we got a patch like a week later and then no one else had um, <laughs> missed that. But all in all, for a game that has like over 500 rooms, uh, to my knowledge, you shouldn't be able to get stuck anywhere. Um, let's see if someone can prove me wrong, but I don't think so. <laughs> and that's always the uh, fun challenge when you have those abilities to break the sequence. What happens yeah. if you get stuck in? Because I'm pretty sure that may have led to some of my difficulties with playing Always Awakening. Because as you said, yeah. like if you give the player a secret or put something as a skip, they're yeah. going to do it. Like, people yeah. who watch me know that I instinctively always go the wrong way in games, because I always know, developers gotta hide something good over there. I mean, they couldn't yeah. possibly get me stuck in a wall or unable to get past something. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, uh, it's fun. But it's also fun to create in that, but it was massive headache for Elder's Legacy, because you had all the different upgrades in this uh, new game. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that that just opened up a whole new issue of problems because you never know what kind of item the player is going to have in any time at the game. You have to design for each and every possibility of each item, each upgrade, each direction, yeah. each health. Uh, and I just remember staring like hours and hours at the map. Okay, if I put the key here, will that result in this way? And I think it's going to be... Very, very interesting to release the game like the next spring and see what the, both the regular players going to do with it, but also the speedrun community because there has to be so many things that, uh, so many creative ways to play the game because it's basically open right from the start. Uh, mm-hmm. You choose your own path sort of way. Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting point, especially one of the things I did like about Always Awakening. A lot of these kinds of, I'm not sure it would be purely movement tech-based games but just having a lot of options is as you said like you always get that sense of joy figuring out i just did something it's you know wasn't really planned wasn't really expected but i can now apply that to something else i think one of the first really great examples of that would be discovering wall jumping in something like super metroid and like yeah. Super Metroid is probably one of the more quintessential speedrun games, just due to all the tech that's involved. And I mean, I've yeah. watched people play that game and do those sequence breaks, and it blows my mind, like how they can just completely skip entire like worlds and just go, "Oh, you know, all those require items. We don't need that. You know, we'll just do yeah. it this way, and it works." Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's fun, but it's uh, it's a challenging. I'm I'm always saying like, yeah, now we're closing up on. Uh, we still have a lot of months of development left for Elvis Legacy, but I'm just uh, 
constantly say, oh, the next game we're making, like our third game, is going to be like a, an easy game. You have to know Metrovania. <laughs> it's just like level by level games. You don't have to consider all those thousands of possibilities that the game is going to yeah. be played by different players. It's fun, but it's also massively um, taxing on your mind and your uh, yeah. your thoughts. Yeah, and I think I definitely want to elaborate on that for any developers watching, because I think this is another one of those very easy traps that you can fall into, and I'm sure, like as you said, that you got, got first-hand knowledge of that, that yeah. it's very easy to give the player all manner of crazy powers, abilities, and whatnot, but if the world is not bound around that, then you run into those situations where, okay, I bounce it so the player has abilities X, Y, and A, but what do they come yeah. at with Y, B, and Z? How are they going yeah. to get through it? And again, yeah. like the easy answer is you just railroad everything. You know, you, you can't go there because we explicitly say no. But then, as we all know, then that gets in the way of, you know, it's a quote-unquote open world. But no, not really, because you're being held by a hand to get from point A to all the way to point Z. Yeah, exactly. But also interesting is that if you allow the player kind of right off the start you it's kind of hard to challenge uh, balance the difficulty like if you have your regular temple the second temple third temple fourth temple whatever uh, if the player decides to go right for the fifth temple or the sixth temple right how do you they might be massively underpowered to battle that temple so that's also challenging like uh, how do you know which player the uh, way the player would go and what if they choose the worst, like the most challenging table right off the start of the game and then just kind of throw the game away because they think it's too hard? So that's also challenging. It's still fun, but it's also challenging. Oh, yeah. And for my audience watching, I've never done that. I never went the wrong order and did the super hard area first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, I have a few uh, more questions regarding Owl's Awakening, and then we'll yeah. move on to Legacy. Uh, sure. For the chat watching, if you do have any questions about Allah's Awakening, uh, feel free to mention them now. One thing, you kind of mentioned this earlier about kind of the enemy designs. That yeah. you want the enemies to kind of be, that you really weren't engaging them. You know, not in the same way as something like the Messenger or Ninja Gaiden. They were kind of there to facilitate the platforming. But obviously yeah. Allah's Awakening has boss fights. And... Yeah. The boss fights in Awa are definitely where, you know, you are forced into combat. And yeah. I want to spend like a minute or so telling more about what was the overall design philosophy for the boss fights in the game? Um, that's also a good question. Basically, uh, they try your ability. Like in the first temple, you get your block. The second temple, you get the, um, the bubble. And the third temple, you get the lightning bolt, which most players play in that order so it was easy in that sense you just have the the different mechanics of the boss challenging you making sure you know how to use your magic block bubble or lightning ball um then we have the super challenging fourth boss which is always fun because that's <laughs> that's really one of the more memorable bosses. but i'd say like I didn't. Uh, we have our programmer. Uh, he's not unfortunately with us anymore on the team. Well, he's he's still alive, but he's not on the team anymore. Uh, he's um, he's um, uh, he did all. So I was basically just saying, okay, this is good, this is bad. We can change this, but he mostly did the design for the bosses. I kind of stay try to stay clear of the 
most of the enemy designs and um, the boss designs because I was more fo I was so focused on like making sure the world connected and it was fun to play. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I thought was very unique about the bosses I didn't see from like a lot of other games was the idea of you picking up the orbs and then. Mm -hmm. By extension, the more orbs you picked up, it would cause kind of like pre-damage to the boss before you actually began the fight. And like, yeah. where did that design come from? Oh wow! Um, hmm. The thing is, we we had we have the blue orbs in the game, but for the longest time, we had the red orbs as well. And the red orbs were kind of meant to work as a currency. Like we didn't want gold. I'm sound like a, like a pacifist here, but we we wanted to make sure the game as I mentioned, wasn't based on um, fighting and it wasn't based on money. Like, there's so many aspects of your life where you're chasing money. So we want to make sure that the game didn't collect gold or coins or stuff like that. So we ended up choosing red orbs, which we kind of meant to be like a substitute for um, for the currency. But for the longest time, we couldn't really figure out what we wanted to do with it. And we had them in order to encourage the floor to you know yeah. find some rewards when they went off the straight path and stuff like that but at the end we cut them and the reason for it hitting bosses and um, damage to the bosses i can't really remember what led to that i remember we struggled a lot because we wanted to make sure the player could upgrade and you know have some sort of um achieving a new level and stuff like that but we didn't want to make the player feel that they need to grind anything. Uh, so having it damage bosses was like a way off because it was it was good. Like if you have a lot of blue orbs, you do a lot of damage on the bosses, and that would help a lot. But if you didn't have a lot of orbs, you wasn't punished, and also you could still finish it if you hadn't got the pattern down. Mm -hmm. And some yeah. like a very like interesting way, as you said, to promote exploration but without yep. making it a required part. Because that's another thing we see from a lot of modern retro games or from a lot of these titles where it's optional, but no, not really. Because if you don't get that stuff, you won't be strong enough to fight the boss or you'll get stuck at a section. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, like we we also, when we had the whole um, like the currency stuff like that, I always think when games have the currency punish you, it kind of feels like you're... Um, taken aback if you lose the currency and there are a lot of games like you know dark souls where you get with the punish i love dark souls but it's always punishing to have to redo stuff like that so we make sure that once you pick something up in our awakening you keep it forever and uh, mm -hmm. having the blue orbs uh, attack the bosses i think that worked pretty well although most people kind of end up having you know only collect half of the orbs but still very useful once you get uh, a lot of orbs uh, mm -hmm. especially at the later bosses especially like the end boss if oh, you yes. have yeah, if you have like a lot of orbs and you have the power ups, you do double damage. Then that boss is um, quite easy, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Speaking about the bosses, like, what was like your favorite boss from a design standpoint, or do um, you have oh. one? <laughs> I'd say like um, there's this um, sea monk guy in the third temple. He's like part octopus, part uh, part <laughs> man, and he has these waterfalls coming up of the ground. I think that's pretty cool because you really have to dodge his projectiles and you really have to pixel perfect time the jumps when he has raised his waterfalls. And I just like the design of the guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I wanted to bring him back for um, Aldous Legacy, but um, we haven't um, haven't had time to do that yet. But the Sea Monkey, yeah, the Third Temple, he's by far my favorite. But I say when it comes down to pixels, uh, like the final boss, um, the Dragon Boss, is uh, really well done by Lordis the Big. He's a really talented. <laughs> All right. I need to replay the game again. It's been, I think, a few months since I last went through it, too, just to yeah. reacquaint myself. Um, but as a quick time check, we are about 50 minutes into the cast. Um, yeah. I do want to switch over to talking more about Awa's Legacy, so we'll probably spend maybe another, I, mean, I would say, 20, 25 minutes if you're good on that. Sure. And before we do that, is there any aspect of Awa's Awakening that we didn't touch on that you would like to bring up? Um, not design-wise, I'd say, but uh, I mentioned it started out as a development game, like an Espro game back in 2014, 2015. And what's fun what this uh, game is that uh, there is a guy called Paul who's actually doing a, kind of like a fan port of the game. So he's redoing the whole game, but in actual on NES hardware. Nice. So he's live streaming on each, um, uh, each Wednesday. And that's going to be a, it's quite fun to follow. And we've redone all the rooms. So we we redid all the rooms, which are close to 500, and they use a modern, uh, you know, 16 by 9 layout. So we had to remake all the rooms to uh, fit into a 4 by 3 like an NES uh, old television. And that was also quite a challenge because all of a sudden you kind of lose like 40% of the room area you have in each room. So you got to make sure that, okay, this jump is two tiles and yeah. now you have to make sure this one tile or, okay, you can't have three jumps, you have to have two jumps. But we successfully remade all rooms and the next step is now to implement our rooms into his code and then see if we can um, play the game on an yes. And hopefully it will be a finished product um, sometime soon. That could be like 2020 or 2021, we don't know. It's fun to see it actually becoming an NES game, finally. Nice, and we're seeing a lot of that coming from the independent and modern retro space of, yeah. you know, having their own cartridges and their own uh, chips printed up and having these games ran. I know uh, the studio, I think it's Mega Cat Games or Mega Cat Studios, they, yeah. like, do their own, like, cartridge manufacturing, like, on-site for some of their games. And, like, it's one of those things that if you're not, like, in the know... It just sounds completely like alien to you. You know, why are they making yeah. Genesis games? It's 2019 yeah. now. Why? Why are people yeah, still exactly. talking about that? Yeah, but it's fun. It's fun. Mega Cat Studios are actually the one who's. Uh, we is, we did we did release the soundtrack so you could play it in an NES like the soundtrack and Mega Cat Studios did that for us. So nice. they're really talented and uh, have good sense for quality. Mm-hmm. And actually, um. That just uh, brings up like one quick question then. As you said, you switched to Unity with developing yep. Always Awakening. For like developers watching this, how was it, I guess, designing like a 2D like pixel-based platformer in Unity? Because I, and again, like this could be like an hour-long answer, so you don't need to go, you know, super in depth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say quite complicated back in oh. forty years or so, but. Pixel art, I mean, Unity wasn't designed primarily for pixel art. I mean, it's called Unity 3D. So <laughs> pixel art was kind of hard to get the proper scaling and stuff like that. You know, we have to resize it to different um, screen resolutions and stuff like that. And we used this uh, external plugin, uh, which helped us resize the pixels so they stayed crisp. But still quite a lot of work. And um, 
I think we did succeed in making it look authentic, but there are still a lot of techno issues that came with it. Like, it's like if you play Mega Man, like every 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 millimeter of every pixel is like perfect. But when you're using Unity, like at least for what we did in a few years ago, it was hard to get that pixel perfect feeling. Uh, although I think we came as close as you can do while using Unity. Now, though, in 2019, Unity has their own uh, Pixel Perfect plugin, which works really well. So um, we haven't had really any problems uh, with Pixel for uh, Aldous Legacy. Uh, it worked uh, really, really well. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think with that, let's talk a little bit more about Aldous Legacy then from a design standpoint. And then that yeah. will probably take us to the end of the stream. Yeah. So... As we said at the beginning, Alwa's Awakening ends with the twist of going from 8-bit to 16. And then yeah. Alwa's Legacy is kind of, I guess no pun intended, keeping that legacy alive with yeah. moving things forward. So yeah. uh, we kind of already mentioned some of the changes at the beginning of the cast, but for anyone new watching this, live or recorded, so where does Alwa's Legacy take us within this world? It kind of picks up right where the first started. Um, and I won't delve too much into the story part of the game because we haven't really actually finalized everything. So we want to make sure we have our own story correct before we actually talk about it. But it'll start you off right at the same screen where the first game ended. But the, uh, there are things that happened this time. Like you have kind of respawned at the same point, but, but for a new reason. You're not really sure why, but... Some people in the world know why you've gone there and what you're going to need to do. Um, but um, so you, you kind of set out in this world and a lot of things will be familiar, but a lot of things will be completely new. Um, so if you play the first game, you'll recognize a few characters. You'll probably recognize an area or two. But if you haven't played the first game, you don't really have to know anything about it. Like we've, we've designed Aldous Legacy to be a complete standalone game because we wanted to feel that... We wanted to make sure that no one who picks up Aldous Legacy feels like they're missing out on something that they didn't play the first game. Like, like if you pick up a Zelda game now, you don't have to play like the first 25 Zelda games for how many there are. Like you can just pick up Breath of the Wild and have a good time, and that's kind of what we wanted to go with with Brothers Legacy as well. Mm -hmm. Now with the update to 16-bit graphics, obviously the end of I was waiting kind of hidden at that. Was yeah. that the original plan for having uh, that kind of graphical update for Legacy? No, there wasn't really any plans. We just struggled having a, like a cool ending. Uh, I'm and sorry, your sound kind of uh, went out there just before you answer that question. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I said that when we did the Elvis Way sequel. So the the ending kind of came from. Um, I said it was inspired by a talk by Ron Gilbert, uh, like the creator of Maniac Mansion and all those uh, old adventure games, like Monkey Island and stuff like that. And he did a talk like in Australia a few years ago where he talked about the ending to uh, Monkey Island uh, 2, which kind of divides people. Uh, like a lot of people love the ending to Monkey Island 2 and hate it. Like I love it. I think it's awesome. And I played the game with my wife and she absolutely hated it. And, <laughs> and that's the same feeling we had for the ending with Dove's Awakening, that it kind of divides people in two. Like uh, a lot of people like it and a lot of people... Um, 
uh, don't like it. Uh, but the cool thing about it is that like the game's been out for two and a half years and we're still talking about the ending. It's like oh, I get a lot of comments about it. Like just the other day someone talked about the ending. I was awakening. So it didn't really come to come from a vision of making a sequel. It just came from we wanted to do something cool and we thought doing like a 16-bit remake of the first game was cool and then it ends abruptly. Um, but it fit perfectly like now when we started making Elvis Wake. We built on that style, although it kind of looks different from the screenshots we have in Elvis Awakening compared to what we do now. We have a huge, much bigger resolution and much cooler effect. It looks a lot better, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching the footage that you have up on the Kickstarter now, and it yep. definitely looks a lot more impressive in terms of not only the graphical style, but kind of like the animations of things that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and that came from us not having any the animation styles, so and there are so much many more pixels to use with uh, because so is Sprite, so is the main character. It's a bit taller and a bit wider, which helps a lot animating. We did realize that having a bigger resolution and bigger characters and bigger sprites and everything that requires a lot more time. So animating all this has taken a lot of time. That's why we still uh, have a lot work, more work to do uh, when it comes to animation. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, um, our uh, BG once again, our pixel artist has done a tremendous job uh, animating all the mm-hmm. uh, all the enemies and um, characters. Now, as you said earlier in the cast, in terms of some like the new features that you have with yeah. Always Legacy, that in terms of like the powers, I'm watching the uh, the footage on the Kickstarter now. I see, yeah. of course, the block and the square, or block, bubble, and the lightning. Are there yeah. any like new mechanics, like involving like movement tech or anything like that, or is it still too early, or not really like part of this design? Uh, we, we have the ability system, and those will primarily affect your uh, movement. And those, uh, they are four, and they work in conjunction with you. So, yeah, we have the abilities, but they were kind of hard to show in the trailer to give them, because you have to weigh how much you want to spoil, how much you want to show. And it was kind of hard to show those uh, in the in the trailer, but there are uh, something we call abilities, and they, uh, they work really, really well. Okay. Now, the world itself... Like, yeah. obviously, uh, you're keeping within, like, the same kind of area as the first game. Is it going to be, or are there going to be, like, new areas to actually explore in Always Legacy? Yeah, there's going to be, uh, like, oh. areas and uh, enemies and stuff like that. And we don't really reuse any of the areas in that sense. A few of them in the beginning, but, uh, yeah, there are a lot of different areas. And we made sure that they not just feel like a palette swap or the same area in another color, but that each area have a unique look, a unique sound, a unique enemy, a unique boss, and a unique quirk, or you need to utilize a specific mechanic in each area. And um, they all interconnect very nice as well, which was also a massive amount of work. Hmm. And I guess with Always Legacy, are you doing anything different in terms of, I guess, game philosophy or the design philosophy of the game compared to Awakening? Um, yes, like we didn't have a proper design document like that described what we wanted to do. Instead, the design document kind of came from that we we went through basically all ever all the reviews that they ever came out of uh, all this way. 
and just read up, okay, what did people like and what uh, didn't people like? And we can compile this list of like 10 common complaints about Dallas Awakening. None were fail, like there were small flaws, but like the most common issues people had with the game. And we set out to, okay, how do we fix these? And then we, so we basically took like everything we liked from the first game. We took this list and fixed all, all items on that. And that was kind of the whole design philosophy. Like, how do we fix everything that we didn't, mm. that people didn't seem to like in the first game? And I thought, and I think we've uh, succeeded on, uh, to be honest, like eight out of 10, probably nine out of 10. And we have six months left of development. So hopefully we can um, get 10 out of 10 eventually. Mm. I guess um, I guess well going to like too far into spoilers, like yeah. what would be like a good example of something that was improved in Legacy compared to Awakening? Um, movement was by far the the biggest complaint. Like we thought it was good. Like we we didn't want to make this super fast action platforming game. We want to make this game where you kind of slowly walk through different dungeons and you reflect and you solve these puzzles. Like it's never. It was never meant to be a fast action game. I was waiting, but I was like, "This is way faster." It's still not, still not like an action game. But it's she she runs and she jumps and you can dash and you can do all this quick movement, so you can easily quite make it through each rooms, uh, very very much faster compared to the first game. But so we cranked up like everything: her animation, her her run speed, and she basically runs it. <laughs> and this led to interesting like design uh, issues because all of a sudden like she could just breathe through two rooms very very quickly because like two two quick jumps and you're basically just moving through a whole room so that was also a part of the design like how do we how do we keep the momentum of making sure she moves fast but still we create interesting rooms that allows you to solve puzzles um but once again i think we've um have a good like balance between faster rooms and a slower, more puzzle-oriented rooms. But her movement was by far one of the um, biggest complaints. Uh, we have even had players that just played like five minutes and then, then you know, gave us a bad Steam review because of the movement. So I don't agree, but I totally can understand uh, if people feel that way. Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting point about kind of like the speed or the gait of the character in these kinds of games. Because yeah. As you said, like for a lot of these like older school games, they're meant to be on the slower side. But yeah. I think for the player who's going through it, like when you have that slow speed combined with like a lot of exploration, I think it does yeah. start to like wear on the person, knowing did I miss yeah. something twenty rooms back? I gotta walk all the way back there, yeah. and then come all the way back here. And it's one of those things I think that no matter how fast you make it everybody's going to want to still be a little bit faster. Like, even I've had that, where I've played games where it's like, you start out very slow, I'm like, oh, this is so annoying, let me get a speed upgrade. I get the speed upgrade, and then I'm still like, I'm still so slow, I won't go even faster than even with the yeah. speed upgrade. Yeah, but that that's just part of the society as well. Like, they'll be, like, every, everything's, you know, everything should be quicker, faster, and, you know, you don't really have anyone Nobody really has any attention span nowadays, and I think that's just very, like, clearly shown in game designs of today's modern games. Like, no one has time for anything, and if you get stuck for, like, five minutes, you throw that game away and start something else. And that's kind of not the games I want to make. I kind of want to make 
actually have to sit down and think. I'm not sure there's a market for it, but they are fun to make, and these are the kind of games I want to make. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, with the Kickstarter right now, as we said, uh, we can't go too far into telling the design of Legacy because obviously it's not out yet. In terms yeah. of, I guess, like enemies or boss designs, have you thought yeah. about any kind of new or like updated elements to them? Yeah, definitely. Uh, for for the first game, Elvis Awakening, um, there was just me, uh, a programmer, and, and uh, a guy who made like the core team of four people. And three of us are still in the team, but we've uh, upgraded to another music artist, another sound designer, and a second um, uh, pixel artist. And that kind of led us to, we had two programmers for the longest of time. Our programmer who did Elvis Awakening uh, left the company like three months ago, but up until then he worked on it for more than a year. So we had two programmers, which led to us having one dedicated guy and all the enemies. So, I mean, it's not going to be like a full AI, super advanced, triple A kind of enemy, but it's still going to be more advanced than the first day. We tried to create more interesting characters uh, and enemies, and they have tags, and they have more frames, and they have more sound. They kind of act differently. Um, and, um, yeah, the bosses as well uh, are more um, very, very much unique and bigger, right? much bigger on screen, uh, both uh, when it comes to design and how they look. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else like design-wise. So we kind of hit a lot of different topics. I guess yeah. with the move to 16-bit, like as you yeah. said, you went through a lot in terms of trying to correct any issues or criticisms with Awa's Awakening. Are there yeah. any other aspects of that, that move in terms of graphical or aesthetic style that kind of influenced the design of the game? Hmm... Yes, I'd say one, like, kind of hard to explain, but we're using, I mean, it, the game is tile-based, so you have these patterns of bricks and background tiles um, and stuff like that. And, and when the first game, Alice Awakening, it was quite easy to, okay, you had your sky, you had your mouth, and you had your brick, and you had your closing brick, like, and you had your yellow brick, and you had your green brick. Stuff like that. It's quite easy to design levels using that. But we find realized when we did uh, still realizing now where we're making Elvis Legacy is that there's so much more to choose from and there's so many different tiles. So in order to properly design this game, we had to come up with a way that we can actually use the level design program to mock up a level quite easily. Uh, so basically what we're doing is that we we do a room but we white box it. Like we only have these um this like one colored tiles for all the different areas and we have one color tile for and then we have this uh, system in our level which swaps the old tiles to different so that led to kind of i wouldn't say a tiled based design but we realized if we want to go and make this half a tile or three tiles and stuff like that it's going to be a massive amount of work because each room is so much bigger and there's so many tiles to choose from um, so that took a lot of time getting a proper balance between how do we work fast to create the room and how do we make them so they don't feel like um, they were marked up in a level edit. Mm. I think we're getting there now, and but there's still a lot of time that's going to be spent on polishing the level. 
like you have to place your cracks, you have to place your flowers and you know rocks and shading and all of that. And that's that was something we underestimated how much work it would be making this kind of high bit uh, pixel art game. But although people call it 16 bit, it's not like the resolution is so much bigger than any could handle. Like uh, and it's 16 by nine, and it's more tiles, and it's just every room is massive amount of tiles in it. So a lot of work, and um, uh, I'd say that kind of implicated the design, but ended up being good at all because we have this good workflow now, which we can easily make a room and it looks brilliant in just like and their styling and everything. But uh, still a lot of rooms to make. And I think it's always that very interesting challenge when you're doing 2D design like this, because uh, we had this discussion, or had a discussion with another developer a few days ago, as we discussed, like, whenever you have, like, those changes, either how the levels are formulated, or even just how the character moves, by extension, yep. that changes everything around them. It's yeah. not something you really think about in 3D all that much, because people are used to kind of, like, the more natural movement of a 3D character. But yeah. with, like, 2D, as you said, like, if you want to make something, like, half a tile wide or change that kind of width, that changes how everything gets connected to it. And even how that character jumps and responds to that to that object. Yeah, exactly. And um, I'd say it was it was so many tiles, like you have these bricks and although it looks it feels simple to say it's just bricks, but making them sure they tile together, it was a massive amount of work and we had to spend a lot of time making sure we could build levels. But now we have a good workflow, and actually next week or so we're going to put up a video like where we show how we make one room uh, by using our uh, level editor, and that's going to be quite interesting. And it's going to be everyone's going to see how how a lot of it's going to take a lot of time to make just one room in the game, but we're getting there. Um, but it's challenging. It's fun though. It's kind of nice to see the room um, shape before your eyes, take shape before your eyes. Nice. And let's see. Oh, one thing that we didn't touch on, I figured I'd give you a chance to talk about. How is yep. the music? Uh, is it being improved or, like, changed for Awa's Legacy? Um, I wouldn't say changed. It's basically more of the, the stuff you had in the first game. Um, our musician who did Elvis basically when we started... Um, a production of Elvis Legacine, so we couldn't work with him. But we uh, went with uh, Rushet One, who's this very, very, very talented uh, ship musician. He worked with a lot of different games, including 1001 Spikes, and he worked with PewDiePie for both his games. And I'd say what changed is that we're using more ch channels, like um, you have a more modern sound, but it's still in ship music. But I think that really works well with the style we're having. And we're very fortunate to have a talented. But another cool thing we did add was that we have um, like modern sound design, because in Elvis Awakening we we just had like the um, what do you call it? like you know eight bit sound effects like everything was made in the same mm -hmm. program we had all the tracks in. But now we have actual sound effects. And that was quite the big step for us because we're pixel like you know old school NES nerds. So <laughs> actually having real sound effects in the game like you actually hear water you hear fire you hear steps that was some time getting used to but now once we have everything sounding 
really, really good in the game. We had help from a guy called Ewell who worked with electronic arts and he worked with sewing games and he done VR games. And the sound effects are massively impressive. Like you can play the game without having any music on and it's so enjoyable just hearing all the steps and you know the enemies and the ambient sound if you're in a cave you have this ambient sound like it's a joy to play like even if you have the music and with the music on it's a also really really good because we have all the facts so i think that was uh, uh, it was a big step for us to go modern sound effects but in hindsight uh, i don't uh, i don't can't understand why we hesitated it became so really really good Nice. Yeah. And just like watching like the footage that you have up on the on the Kickstarter, I mean, it does look so much, you know, bigger and more expansive compared to the first game. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It expands on everything and it's still in a reasonable scope, like uh, it's still reasonable, but that's one of the reasons we're asking uh, the lovely community on Kickstarter to help us out because we're uh, we have a bit more months left of development, although we are getting close to, like, we have added, basically all the content is done. We just need, like, a six month or so to just polish everything up because so many rooms and so many tiles and so many so many different things to polish up. But all in all, we're, we're in pretty good pace. And um, once we get funded, we'll um, have enough cash to survive for uh, six or seven months. And again, uh, I definitely want to give you the best of luck with getting to that goal. But Thank you so much. I think I am just about out of questions. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. If the chat has any final questions about Awa's legacy, uh, definitely get them in right now. I guess throwing it to you, anything that we didn't touch on for Awa's legacy yet? Not really. I mean, the basic is that Steam and we're doing like launch early next spring is the plan once we're funded and then eventually down the road to a PS4 and Xbox One and a GOG and games release. That's the plan. Uh, we've done Switch and Steam before for Alice Awakening, so we're confident to do it. And um, no, it's going to be one heck of a game. Uh, if you liked anything about Alice Awakening, you'll definitely love Alice Legacy. Like, take took everything that was good from Alice Awakening and removed all the bar parts and just made it better looking, sounder, and uh, cooler, and which much more fun mechanics. So uh, we're super excited to get the game out there early next year in the spring. Great. So I guess I got asked one question, though. Is the twist ending of Owl's Legacy going to take the game into 32-bit? <laughs> Are you going to keep it or go beyond that? <laughs> yeah, we, we've, uh, we haven't. Uh, we have we have some crazy ideas, uh, but uh, you're gonna have to play the game to find out how how it's ending. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess so one final question. I don't know how long this will yeah. be. Um, have you has there been any considerations or thoughts about speedrunners for all of us? Let's say again, uh, one of like the more interesting things was how people took to the first game. Have you given yeah. any like new considerations for speedrunning with Legacy? Yeah, there um, in Sweden we have a lot of talented, and they were production of Alice Awakening. So during the development, we had a lot of help and input from speedrunners. Um, we've just now finished the demo, and as we're as we're speaking now, one of the most known uh, Swedish speedrunners is actually playing the game, and I'm terrified what he <laughs> was able to find during the 
he's basically the world premiere and he's been streaming for an hour now. So I'm going to check the stream and see if he completely wrecked everything. Or, <laughs> or works. But yeah, the, the thing is when we open up the skill tree and the way for the player to choose their own way, we kind of open up the Pandora's box yeah. of the endless possibilities to destroy and to uh, play this game in any way you want. And I'm 50% terrified and 50% super excited to see what the speedrun screen is going to do with this game. Hopefully it's going to be an active speedrun community um, as the first game. But we're basically we're in that point right now where we're going to start sending out the game and see what people can do with it. But it has been designed from a speedrun perspective right off the start, I'd say. Nice. And yeah, there's yeah. only a discussion we had about giving the player the ability to customize their experience and that yeah. would probably be like another full hour or so and i know that i think there's a six hour time difference so it's probably getting very <laughs> late for you <laughs> yeah it's past 10 here but it's it's okay the party's still going all right but i think that is <laughs> it in terms of my question so uh yeah. to wrap things up uh, for people watching, you already mentioned the platforms for Always Legacy. Yep. So that's Switch, PS4, Xbox One, GOG, and Steam. In yep. terms of a release date, if you guys are able to hit your funding, do you have an estimate idea for when the game will be done? Nothing more than spring 2020. That's all. That's April on the kick. That's, uh, that's what we're aiming for. But um, um, yeah, April 2020 is our goal. Okay. Now, you've already mentioned that there is the backer demo for the game. Are you planning yeah. on having a public demo for people to try out at some point? Uh, not at this time. Uh, this is the first time we're doing any kind of demo. So it's going to be exciting and scary to see, to have a demo, because there's like two parts to having a demo like some people say it's good and some people say it's not good to have a demo uh, so it's going to be fun to have the backer demo to see what we'll get from that but um, no plans for a public demo now but we are going to collect like all the backer who get the demo is going to be able to join us on discord and be able to feedback directly on the, the game and make sure they get their feedback uh, and we can do whatever changes the community uh, with the community think they want uh, which we should be able to do with the next six months or so okay in yeah. terms of social media are there any places yeah. you'd like to plug right now for the people watching live or recorded yes uh, if you want to follow the development or get with us uh, we're elden pixels at um, basically all social media like we primarily use twitter but we're on instagram facebook and twitch and uh, discord and it's E L D N pixels, E L D E N pixels, one word. That's uh, that's where you can uh, follow us. And if you want to follow me, I'm Michael Porcelain on uh, Twitter. And um, if you have any questions, just reach out to me or Eldon, and uh, we'll answer you as soon as we can. Although we are a bit clogged right now because the <laughs> the social media account is going crazy with all the retweets and comments. And... Mm -hmm. yeah. So we'll, we'll get there in time. All right, and I'll include a links to the Kickstarter and everything down below in the description on the recorded version. Other Thank than that, so um, I guess my final question then is, do you have anything like to say to the fans watching this right now to end the cast on? Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, when we released Alba's Awakening, we didn't have, like, we, we joked, if we had, like, sold 10 copies, it would still be worth it because we had so much fun and it was such a fun mm -hmm. experience uh, 
and we're thankful of what we've sold a lot more than 10 copies and we were able to continue this uh, Alva's journey for hopefully many years to come and everything that we have like came from our community so we're super super thankful for that and um, it really has helped us reach far with our Kickstarter as well so thank you everyone for supporting us awesome so I think with that, we will be ending things for this week's cast. Be sure to check out the Kickstarter for All Us Legacy. I'll include a link to that in the description down below. And if I get a chance, we'll do a play of the demo of the game as well. And we'll put a link to that somewhere in the description of this video when it goes up. But, uh, Michael, again, it has been great hanging out with you my afternoon, your evening. Good luck yes. with the rest of the Kickstarter, and hopefully in the future we can have you back on and talk more about the development of the game when it's finally out. That would be a super fun, and I'd love to be back. Thank you so much for... Alright, not a problem. So, with that, we're going to be ending for the cast. As always, if you'd like to follow me, I am on Twitter at GWBicer. If you want to join our Discord, it is linked down below, as well as our Patreon. And I'll be back later tonight for our regular game streaming. And if you are a developer working on your own game or just like talking about design and would like to come on, uh, feel free to send me a message. We're always looking for new guests. But with that said, thank you for tuning in to this week's cast and come back for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where he's in the art and science of games. Until next time, take care. <laughs>